we'll cover seven tonight, hopefully. The first seven. But before we get into it, uh, let's pray and ask for the, the Lord's blessing. And Mark, if you could turn this up just a little bit. My voice is going out on me if you can. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for the truths of Scripture. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've, you've given us this book, that you've taken your thoughts and your ways, and you've written them down in a book. And Lord, tonight as we move into this new passage of Scripture, as we begin to study the Psalms of Israel, Lord, what rich, uh, just overflowing uh, content that we find in the Psalms. Help us, Lord, to be able to open our hearts and open our minds and receive from you. I, I believe, Lord, that you have special blessing for us, special treasures for us as we move into the Psalms. And so encourage us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Hebrew title of the Psalms is Tehillim. Or the book of praise. And the Psalms are just that. They are the praise songs of Israel. They are the Hebrew hymnal. All the Psalms were originally set to music. Of course, the melodies and the notes have been lost. Only the lyrics live on. Perhaps God intended for each new generation to rewrite the musical score in a relevant manner. The Psalms are written out of every possible human situation, every possible human emotion. They teach us how to relate to God in any situation. Think of it this way, Genesis to Esther is full of movement and places and dates and decrees. It records Hebrew history, the steps of their feet. But the Psalms provide the beat of their heart. It is a diary of devotion. The book of Psalms chronicles the inner life of the nation Israel, their spiritual struggles and their victories. Picture the Psalms as the EKG readout, as God's people take the stress test called life. The 150 Psalms are actually divided into five books. Book 1 is chapters 1 through 41. Book 2 is chapters 42 to 72. Book 3 are chapters 73 to 89. Book 4 are Psalm 90 through 106. And book 5 is Psalm 107 through 150. Hebrew tradition says that the five divisions were intended to correspond with the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. And if that were true, we have no reason to doubt it, there would be no better way then to begin a reading of the law than the first psalm. Psalm 1 contrasts the man who delights in God's law with the man who doesn't. It contrasts the godly man with the ungodly. It begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice, a truly godly man is a happy man. The Hebrew, translated, the Hebrew word translated blessed is in its plural form here. It literally reads, happy, happy, happy is this man. 
Verse 1 could, could be rendered, happiness is the man who walks not. Here's what happiness is. Here's how you live your life if you want to find happiness. And here's the first key to living a happy life. Get your life in the right position. You know, this is the key in football. You can have enormous talent, but if you're not at the right place at the right time, you can't make the play, and your talent goes to waste. Success in sports is about getting in the right position. And notice how a godly person positions themselves. First, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Do you listen to the right counsel? Second, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. Do you linger with the right people? And then finally, he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Do you look at life from the right viewpoint? Do you listen to the right counsel? Do you linger with the right people? Do you look at life from the right viewpoint? Have you positioned your life to grow and prosper spiritually? You know, you won't find happiness listening to folks who are deaf to God. You, you won't find it lingering with people who are walking in sin. And you won't find it looking at life through a cynical, scornful, negative attitude. A truly happy person surrounds himself or herself with biblical counsel and with godly counselors and with healthy commentary. Notice, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Happiness happens when you begin to sync your life with God's Word. Oh, how we need to learn to view life from God's perspective. Have you made the light of God's Word your delight? Here, the happy man, he delights in the law of the Lord. You remember, this was what Jeremiah did. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, we're told, he says to God, Your words were found. They found a copy of the scroll of the law in the back recesses of the temple. They brought it to Jeremiah. They said, look what we found. He says, your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. This is what brought me out of that bad place, the light of the word of God. And I made it my delight. You know, Jeremiah left behind the mocking, cynical, spiteful crowd, and he walked in the light of God's Word. Have you done that? Have you left behind that crowd? He developed a love and an appetite for the Bible. The turning point in any person's life is when their curiosity for truth draws them to the Bible. They begin to learn. They begin to find a great joy in deepening their knowledge of God. Thomas Aquinas once wrote, I have no rest but in a nook with the book. Notice the psalmist meditates on God's Word. The word meditate means to mull it over. Think of a cow chewing its cud. That's how we need to handle God's Word. We, we need to chew on it. We need to turn it over and over and over. We need to put it on the rotisserie and just sort of turn it over on the rotisserie of our mind. We need to look at it from different angles, explore it from different thoughts. You know, the Eastern concept of meditation teaches people to turn off their minds. They're supposed to focus on a neutral spot, let their mind just go blank. Biblical meditation is just the opposite. You don't turn off your mind. 
Rather, you use your mind to engage God's Word. We fill our minds with God's thoughts. Understand, our minds are God's invention, are they not? They're His creation. When we meditate, we trust God to help our minds grasp and unravel and unpackage the truth of God's Word. A happy person is shaped by the Word, not colored by the world. Verse 3 tells us, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Again, notice the importance of position. The rivers of water mentioned by the psalmist were not the streams and the rivers that were subject to the rain and, and, could, could, or, and could potentially dry up over time. These were the irrigation canals. These were the canals that were dug by the Israelis to bring water from the desert. They would plant their crops and their fruit trees along these canals. They took advantage of this reliable source of water. And the psalmist is saying, the happy man is the one who's smart enough to plant him and his family next to reliable spiritual resources. A godly man sinks his roots. He's planted. He sprouts his shoots. His leaf doesn't wither. He bears his fruit. Whatever he does prospers. But again, take note. His health and his productivity is a direct result of his deliberate positioning. He positions himself for growth. Have you done that? Have you positioned yourself and your family to grow in the Lord, in your knowledge of God's Word? Spiritual prosperity depends on spiritual positioning. And yet in contrast, notice, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. A person who fails to sink spiritual roots next to reliable resources ends up like the corn husks in a windstorm. They, they just dry out and they blow away. The ungodly, they have no anchor. They drift. Life becomes a guessing game. You know, Ephesians 4 verse 14, there Paul warns us not to be like the ungodly. He says, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Don't be like the chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now Acts chapter 4 attributes Psalm chapter 2 to King David. If you read Acts 4, you'll see that David said, and he quotes from Acts chapter 2, I mean Psalm chapter 2. In addition, Acts 4 considers Psalm 2 a prophetic passage of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. In fact, we'll find that many, if not all, of the Psalms actually speak of Jesus. Psalm 2 was likely written by David in a time of war. But his thoughts transcend the battle at hand and they focus on the final battle and the second coming of, of the Messiah. When Jesus returns, he'll destroy the wicked nations of the earth. You know, Jesus is a pacifist. After he destroys all his enemies, then there'll be peace for a thousand years. But Jesus is going to come back, you know, with a sword in hand. 
He's going to come back to, to slaughter the wicked and to establish His kingdom. This psalm speaks of it. It opens, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now the Hebrew term translated anointed is Messiah. We've talked about this. The Greek word is Christos or Christ. All three words, anointed, Messiah, and Christ, they, they all speak of the same thing. It was the, it was the anointing of the oil that was poured out on the head of the king, the anointed one or the Messiah. Well, here he's talking about his Messiah and how the nations of the world plot against him. They, they want to throw off his yoke. Here we find the end of the age when the armies of the Antichrist will rally to the valley of Megiddo to fight against the true Christ. They will have seen the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds and they will intend war against Him. What a vain, empty ambition though. What a vain desire to try to prevent Jesus, the Lord of glory, from returning to earth to take what rightly belongs to Him. But that's the point of the psalm. Rebellion against God is the ultimate insanity. These kings of the earth, they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Again, this is sheer arrogance. Man wants to break from God's authority. He wants to shed himself of God's rules and of God's restraint. You know, this is the source of man's rebellion. People just don't want to be told what to do. The proud man bucks at any limitations on his freedom, even if God puts those limitations on his freedom for his own good. In the end, in the end times, this attitude is going to take the form of a United Nations resolution, an official, formal conspiracy against God. Today, it, it exists as spiritual rebellion in people's hearts. Verse 4 reveals God's response to man's rebellion. Notice this. Man is shaking his fist in God's face. He's plotting and planning to resist the Christ from coming back to the earth. He's going to fight against the Lord and His anointed. And notice how God responds. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Who are these puny little creatures to resist my will and my authority? The Almighty just laughs. He views the uprising of puny men as comical. Like a toddler wrestling with a grown man. You know, a two-year-old threatened to beat up his dad. Man is seething at God while God is simply chuckling at defiant man. Commentator John Phillips, he writes this. As though man who's orbited some hardware in space can compete with a God who has orbited a hundred million galaxies. As though man who has solved a few subtleties of the atom and managed to scare himself half to death in the process can compete with a God who stokes the nuclear fires of a billion stars. No wonder he that sits in the heavens simply laughs. God laughs at man's defiance. But rebellion against God is no laughing matter. In verse 5, God speaks of His anger. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. 
You know, when Jesus returns, the Old Testament tells us that he will rule the world from the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, from God's holy hill. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Notice this. God identifies the Messiah as his son, his begotten, his begotten son. Hebrews 1 quotes this verse to prove the deity of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this. This is so very important and critical when it comes to our theology. Remember this. In Hebrew thought, animals will beget animals. A cow is going to beget a cow. Men beget men. Therefore, God begets God. So to say that Jesus is begotten of God is to equate him with God. It's to ascribe deity to him. Think of it this way. The son of a dog is a dog. The son of a man is a... The son of God is God. Here Jehovah said to Jesus of Nazareth what he had said to no one else before or since. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. According to Romans 8, as believers in Jesus, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The favor and acceptance that God has poured out on Jesus has been inherited by us. Notice this, spiritual wealth and riches are our inheritance. But what has Jesus inherited? Have you ever thought of that? In fact, in Ephesians 1 verse 18, there we're told that the church is his inheritance. Isn't this interesting? An inheritance is considered a treasure. And Jesus treasures us. We are his treasure. We're his inheritance. Here the psalmist calls the nations of the earth Jesus' inheritance. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. During Jesus' reign over the earth, he will reign with force, with a rod of iron. Jesus will rule as a benevolent dictator, but a dictator nonetheless. Rebellion will not be tolerated. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. In the Orient, to kiss a royal is a sign that you'll be loyal. And the psalmist here says that it's best to kiss the son while you have the chance. Pledge your loyalty to him now. Kiss him now, or you'll be crushed later. For when Jesus returns, he will return to judge. Well, Psalm 3 is the first of many psalms that have an opening comment. These introductions were not in the original manuscripts. We don't take them to be inspired, but they are very, very old, and they do provide reliable, valuable insights into the meaning of the psalms to which they're attached, and so we'll pay attention to them. Here we're told, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. 
Absalom was David's oldest son, and he led a coup d'etat and usurped his father's throne. You remember David in in return, he vacated the palace there in Jerusalem. And he led his followers across the Kidron Valley and out into the Judean mountains there to regroup. Apparently, Psalm 3 was the song that David sung as he left Jerusalem. He says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. You know, for several years, Absalom had conducted a campaign of sabotage. Before he launched his coup, he had drawn away the allegiance of the people. When folks came to the king for a judgment, Absalom would stand in David's stead. It would sort of give the impression that the king was too busy for them. But, oh, Absalom, you know, he, he loves them. He cares for them. You know, David doesn't have time for you, but Absalom, oh, he's your friend. 2 Samuel 15, verse 6 says, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom mounted quite a coup. He persuaded even members of David's own cabinet to join the revolt. David says, many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. And note the little musical notation that follows. Selah. The word will occur over and over throughout the Psalms. It literally means to lift up. It might have been a musical instruction intended for the musicians to sort of take it up an octave at this point. You you know, play loud or speed up the beat, raise the, 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 the cadence. Could have been. Or it could have been an instruction to the listeners. Lift this up, dwell on this thought for a little while. Pause and ponder this thought. It's an important point. That that could have been its meaning. Of course, this was a strategic thought here. David's critics had been saying, there is no help for him in God. Remember, David had sinned with Bathsheba, and he had set a poor example for his family. He had also been an aloof and an apathetic father. All this had combined to provoke Absalom's rebellion. Hey, David was just getting what he deserved, and some of the people had concluded, there is no help for him in God. God has abandoned this once great king. He's put him on the shelf. It's over for David. Yet David says, not so fast. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. You pause and think about that. Wow, aren't you glad God is far more forgiving than people? Aren't you glad? Lifelong trusted friends forsook David, but God stood by his side. The Lord remained his shield against the enemy. Even when his own counselors, men like Ahithophel, abandoned him, God lifted up his head. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Did you know that faith is a great sleeping pill? If you're having problems going to sleep, pop a little faith. When you fear the Lord, there's nothing else to fear. Not even tens of thousands of the enemy. He says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. It's enough for the Lord to just rise to his feet and flex his muscles and our problems are over. 
Have you ever prayed, Lord, just rise, rise, Lord, and save me? For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. God, just bust the wicked in the mouth. You ever prayed that? David did. David praises God for having cold-cocked all of his enemies. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Now, the preamble for Psalm 4 reads, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Here's another psalm that was written by David. In fact, there'll be, I think it's uh, a little more than half, maybe 76, 77 psalms that are actually ascribed to David. This was given to the chief musician. 2 Chronicles chapter 6 tells us his name. It was Chenaniah. This was the chief musician. He was the temple worship leader, you might say. Apparently, David wanted this psalm to be used in the public worship of the nation Israel. Therefore, he gave it to the worship leader, Chenaniah, the chief musician. You know, apparently, Psalms 3 and 4 are psalms for insomniacs. If you can't sleep, these are two psalms for you. In Psalm 3, verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. Here, too, he's going to talk about... uh, getting to sleep. Did you know that every year in America, Americans pop 800,000 pounds of barbiturates to help them go to sleep every year in America? We are sleepless in America. There are over 200 sleep-inducing potions on the market. Here's a better remedy. God's peace. Let God calm your fears. Let Him lift your head. Let Him put you to sleep. Verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. The word relieve means to enlarge. Spurgeon titled this psalm, How to be enlarged when confined. In other words, how to be open to God when you're in a tight spot. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn from my glory, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Again, Selah, think about that. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Did you know that God wants us to be angry? Here here we're commanded, be angry. God wants you to be angry, but not at the traffic or at your neighbor or at the price of gas or, or at the bulldog loss to Alabama. No, be angry at sin. Be angry at sin. Wherever it raises its head, be angry at sin. For sin is around us. Sin is even in us. You know, there's nothing wrong with being angry as long as your anger is properly directed. It's been said a strong security against sin is to be shocked by it. We need to be angry at those things that upset God. God will guard us from distress if we guard our hearts from sin. 
Be angry at sin. Be set apart to God, and God will hear and answer your prayers. He says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. See, if you're having a hard time going to sleep, just meditate in your heart on your bed. Just think God's thoughts. Get your Bible out. Open it up. Begin to read the Scriptures. You know, your wife won't complain about the light being on if she sees that you're reading the Bible. Maybe. I like this though. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. You hear how to be enlarged when you're in a tight spot. Always remember, thinking godly thoughts opens us up to new possibilities. Whenever we get stumped, think godly thoughts, think biblical thoughts. And, and, and when, we, when we do, it enlarges our mind, it enlarges our perspective. Suddenly we begin to see things that we didn't see before. We see new possibilities, new opportunities. God begins to, to rush into our minds with, with new stimulus for faith and trust in Him. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now the Old Testament worshiper uh, when, when he was told to offer a sacrifice, he would offer either a grain offering or he would slaughter a lamb and he would offer a burnt offering. But you know, we as Christians can offer sacrifices too. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that we need to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. You know, Jesus was the, the last of the dead sacrifices. He died and then rose again for our sin. But, but now we can offer our bodies, but he doesn't want dead sacrifice anymore. He wants living sacrifice. He wants us to put our bodies on the altar. Another way we can make a sacrifice to God is Hebrews 13, verse 15. There it speaks of the fruit of our lips, which is the sacrifice of praise. When we praise God, we're offering him a sacrifice. And then in Philippians 4, verse 18, there we're told that our financial offering is a sacrifice to God. So there are ways that we can offer the sacrifices of righteousness. He says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. You know, the world that we live in is such a cynical place, is it not? Everyone is always questioning Everyone is always doubting. Everyone is always skeptical. Who will show us any good? People say. But David doesn't doubt God. He's too busy enjoying God. The Lord has put gladness in his heart, he says. Verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I will lie down in sleep because I trust in the Lord. He will help me. You know, I've read that one in ten Americans has chronic insomnia. One in four has occasional difficulty falling asleep. Here are a few treatments that I ran across that are supposed to help you get to sleep. Take a warm bath. Get a massage. Drink warm milk. Drink herb tea. I try that, but then I got to pee and I have to get up and I get to sleep. Sleep in a well-ventilated room. Sleep on a firm bed. Sleep on your back. Sleep with your head facing north. What does that have to do with anything? 
wiggle your toes, rub your stomach. I could have my wife rub my stomach, but then I really wouldn't want to go to sleep. (laughs) Breathe deeply, and the list goes on and on here. Here's a better way to get to sleep. Pray for God's peace. Spend time with God. Rest in His provision and in His love for you. Don't take NyQuil. Just know that you're in God's wool. You know what I mean by that. Stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. That, you could try that too. Trust God for your safety. You know, it's been said, if you can't sleep, don't count sheep. Talk to the shepherd. Psalm 5. To the chief musician with flutes. A psalm of David. Notice Psalm 4 was to be played with stringed instruments. Psalm 5 calls for a flute. Verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. Now David asked God to give ear to his words. The expression means to broaden. David is is saying to God, you know, put your hand over your ear. Cup your hand behind your ear. Did you know that when you do that, it increases the volume of what you're listening to? It it creates a little resonance bouncing off your hand. And so there really is something about that, cupping your hand. That's what David's asking God to do. Give ear. Cup your hand behind your ear, God, so you'll hear what I have to say. David wants God to hear his prayers. He said, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning, I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Notice the morning is a good time to pray, is it not? Before you start your day, before you get busy, before you get bombarded with all the unexpected things, take some time to talk to God. Read His Word. Notice, too, this word direct, verse 3. It means to set in order. He says, in the morning, I will direct my prayer to you. The word was actually used to describe the high priest as he would arrange the sacrifice on the altar. When we pray, we should order our prayers. We should arrange our prayers. We should direct our prayers. There there should be some organization, some flow, some sense to what we're praying. So often we, we offer up these scattered ramblings, you know. We don't really give much thought to it. We just start praying whatever comes into our minds. How helpful it would be. How God would be pleased if he saw that we took the time and made the effort to sort of organize our prayer before we prayed it. And finally, I love the hope and anticipation with which David prays. He says, when he finishes his request, he looks to God for an answer. He says, I will look up. When you finish praying, do do you just put your head down and go about your day? Or do you look up and expect God to hear and to answer? Verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. God hates the man who plots rebellion. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verses 1 through 3 let us know that Jehovah is a hearing God. 
He hears our prayers. While verses 4 through 6 emphasize that He is a holy God. We're told, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. It's good to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And beginning in verse 8, we learn that Jehovah is a helpful God. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. David asked God to help him know God's will. Did you, did you know, don't forget, God wants you to walk in his will more than you do. And if you'll ask God to help you know his will, he, he will. <laughs> he will. You know, I, a long time ago, I, I learned to put a lot more trust in God's ability to speak than in my ability to hear. I believe God wants me in his will. And he's going to get me the message if I'll just sort of hang in there. If I'll just keep listening. Sometimes he has to knock me over the head with a, you know, a brick, but he's always faithful. He gets through to me the message he wants me to hear. He says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part, is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. And of course, you know, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it, but don't swallow it. Beware of the wicked man's flattery. We're told his throat is like an open tomb. Don't fall for his words. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against you. David was not opposed to praying harm on people who oppose God and God's plans. We're going to see this over and over in the Psalms. He says, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. A believer should be the most joyful person on the planet. Charles Spurgeon wrote of verse 11, You have permission for joy. You have here a ticket to the banquets of joy. You may be as happy as you ever like. You have divine permission to shout for joy. Did, did you know what the word rejoice means? You know, we're commanded to rejoice. It means to take joy. Now, you might not have joy right now. But joy is available to you. But you have to rejoice. You have to take that joy that Jesus brings. Take joy tonight. There's plenty there for you. But you have to take it. Psalm 5 teaches us that Jehovah is a hearing God. He is a holy God. He is a helpful God. And then He is a heaping God. He heaps all kinds of blessings on his people. Verse 12, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. God surrounds us with his favor. What a wonderful thought. In David's tumultuous life, there were times when he was surrounded by Philistines. And he was surrounded by other troubles. But here he's surrounded by God's favor. God's acceptance protected him and sheltered him like a shield. Psalm 6 is to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. 
Now, the Hebrew word translated eight-stringed harp is shimineth. A literal translation is simply eight. Rather than eight strings, some scholars believe that this was a musical note to raise or to lure the music eight notes. In other words, take it up an octave or take it down an octave. Psalm 6 is a psalm of confession, so it is probable that it was, song, it was sung in a lower registry. It was taken down an octave. Another thought is that it was sung by a male choir, and so that too necessitated it being lowered an octave. And ironically, speaking of the psalms that deal with confession and repentance, this is interesting, there are eight. There are eight of them. Psalm 6 Psalm 25, 32, 51, 88, 102, 130, and 143. Verse 1 of Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now the Bible tells us not to despise the discipline of the Lord. And we know that He's faithful. When we step out of line or when we slow to a crawl or when we rush out ahead of God into danger, we know that God is faithful to spank us. We need to be spanked from time to time, do we not? God is faithful to supply one of those gentle yet swift little God pops. You ever get a God pop? Apparently, David is not opposed to being spanked by God. He knows that he needs it. He knows that it's helpful. He knows that it's an example of God's faithfulness and love for him. But he does ask God to cool off before he spanks. (laughs) He does. He says, don't chasten me in your hot displeasure. God, when you go to spank me, please count to ten. (laughs) Please kind of chill a little, Lord, before you you spank me. Verse 2, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak, O Lord. Heal me. For my bones are troubled, or literally, they quiver and they shake. Weak means to droop. David's strength here is wilting like a cut flower. He says, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? David knows he needs this discipline. But discipline, as you know, is never pleasant. And he wants to know when his trial is going to be over. Lord, how long do I have to stay in timeout? That's what he's asking. Of course, God doesn't always tell us his timetables, does he? He doesn't. We have to learn to wait on him. David is willing, you know, he's wilting while he's waiting is what's happening. And he's, he understands it's hard to wait, God. I'm in this trial, I'm in this difficult, I'm wilting, I'm going weak. This is hard to wait. Verse 4, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave. Who will give you thanks? God, how can I testify of your faithfulness if I'm dead? Whatever his ailment, whatever his trial, David felt like he was, it was going to be the end of him, that he was about to kick the bucket. Verse 6, I am weary from my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. David groans all day. He he tires. He falls asleep. He wakes up in a cold sweat. He saturates his pillow with tears. 
You know, Spurgeon referred to prayers as liquid tears. I'm sorry, I got that backward. He referred to tears as liquid prayers. Did you know that's what tears are? They are. They're liquid prayers when we direct them to God. And if that's the case, David had quite a prayer life because here here he wets his his, uh, couch, his pillow with tears. Life is not a bed of roses for David here. He's in a heavy trial. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. You know, it was possible that in the daytime, David was able to sort of cover up his tears. He was busy with affairs of state. But at night, after the amusements were done, after the entertainment was over, in bed with the lights out, while he was alone with only his conscience, the guilt returned. And David would cry himself to sleep many, many nights. He says, until his eye wastes away, until his eyes literally just just couldn't keep them open. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Wow, the tone changes here in verse 8. Apparently God has forgiven him. He says, the Lord has now heard my supplication. The Father is finally done with David's discipline. His spanking is over. And isn't that, isn't that a great feeling? Do you, do you remember as a kid where, oh my, you got caught, you knew it. Of course, it started before you got caught. You wanted to get caught, really. Felt so bad, you had that guilty conscience, you knew you'd done something wrong, you knew we were about to get caught. And, and just the suspense of it just drove you nuts. Until finally, you know, Dad would, would finally catch me and he'd, discipline me and boy I'd be fearing that spanking and then and then he'd spank me and when the spanking was finally done I mean when the price had been paid when the forgiveness had been done and dad would always hug me in his arms and tell me he still loved me boy what a great feeling that was what a rush here David is excited you know the discipline's done you know his his spanking is over David now becomes bold and he becomes confident again he says let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly you know how quickly god can turn the tables in our life when we confess our sins a shower of tears here gives way to a rainbow of forgiveness psalm 7 the last one we'll do tonight is a meditation of David which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now there is no mention in the history of David where he had any dealings with Cush, a Benjamite. It is interesting though that King Saul was a Benjamite. And Cush may have been one of David's enemies in Saul's royal court. The word translated here, meditation, is shagayon, or wandering. And some scholars connect wandering to the rambling style of this psalm. We'll get into it. You'll see that it kind, of kind of goes back and forth. Others say that the psalm was likely written while David was wandering in exile. Regardless of the exact background of Psalm 7, this man, Cush, has been attacking David's reputation. He's been accusing him of falsehoods. Psalm 7 has been titled, The Song of the Slandered Saint. David begins his meditation, O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me 
and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Now, David is not exaggerating here. If you've ever been slandered, have you ever had anybody tell a lie about you, defame your character? He's not exaggerating because that kind of an injury can be more damaging to your psyche than even a lion's claws. Flesh wounds heal in short order. But the damage that a gossip does to your reputation can linger for years. So see if you can identify the following villain. I am more deadly than the screaming shell from a machine gun. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind with no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive my name. And if you've ever been attacked by him, you'll know that his name is Gossip. Once there was a young man who was guilty of telling slanderous lies, and he came to this pastor for help. And he asked him, he said, what, what can I do? What can I do to make things right? And the pastor told him, he says, well, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pillow, a, a feather pillow, and I want you to break open the pillow, and I want you to pull out the feathers one by one, and I want you to go around the town, and I want you to put a feather on every porch, on every house in this town. Well, the young man obeyed. But when he returned to the pastor, he asked him, he said, well, you know, it just, just seems like there's something missing. Is there anything else? And that's when the pastor answered him. He said, yes, now I want you to go and I want you to collect all the feathers. And, of course, the man complained, that's impossible. They've all blown away by now. And the pastor says, that's the point. Slanderous words are impossible to retrieve. He says, oh, Lord, my God. If I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. David is bold because he knows that he's innocent. He knows that God will vindicate him. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. He says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. I like that. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. In other words, David doesn't try to avenge himself. He doesn't even try to defend himself against these false accusations. He trusts the Lord with his reputation. Do you trust the Lord with your reputation? You know, it's been said, you take care of your character and let God worry about your reputation. 
good advice. Psalm 7 affirms that lesson. You know, early in my ministry, this was really hammered home to me. One Sunday night, three ladies left Calvary Chapel, and they went up to the local Burger King. Apparently, they were telling and eating Whoppers at the same time. When suddenly, the guy in the booth next to them, he gets up, and he walks over, and he says, You know, I know Sandy Adams, and the things you're saying about him are not true. You ladies are up here telling lies. <laughs> that threw a damper on the party. In fact, one of the ladies came back to me later and she apologized. And to this day, I have no idea who the man was. He could have been an angel for all I know. But I did learn an important lesson. That God will protect my reputation. That I don't have to worry about defending myself or avenging myself. That if I take care of my character... God will take care of my reputation. Verse 11 tells us, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, now the word translated angry, it, it means really angry. It means to froth at the mouth. It means to really get angry. You know, often we only tell people half the truth about God. We say, oh, God is loving, and God is kind, and God is merciful. And that's true. But God is also outraged and incensed over sin. And He gets angry with the wicked every day. If you're a parent, you realize that loving your child doesn't stop you from getting mad at him. <laughs> you ever get angry at your children? Does that mean you don't love them? Of course it doesn't. You love your kid, but when that kid rebels against you and what's right for that child, you get angry with them. In fact, the more you love a child, the angrier you'll get when he fails to live up to his potential or if he goes and harms himself. Likewise, God gets mad at the wicked. He's angry with the wicked every day. We're told if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. I mean, God will forgive you if you turn back. God, there's, there's mercy that, that abounds. I mean, God is rich in mercy, the Bible says. There, there's plenty of mercy to forgive you and to restore you. But if you do not turn back, He will sharpen His sword. That's not a good thing for you. He bends His bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for Himself instruments of death. He makes His arrows into fiery shafts. God isn't kidding about sin. He plans to judge the wicked. In fact, His bow is drawn and it's loaded with a fiery dart even as we speak. He is sharpening His sword. And if you don't turn back, if you don't repent, you'll be judged. Sin has to be judged. God would betray His nature. He would not be true to who He is if He let us off scot-free. Sin has to be judged. Jesus has paid for your sin. It's already been judged on the cross. All you have to do is accept it. But if you don't accept it, there is a fiery dart in God's bow aimed at you. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and he dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing 
shall come down on his own crown. In other words, the wicked man, he falls into his own trap. Sin does this, doesn't it? It usually backfires. It does. Reminds me of the thief. True story. This thief, he broke into a storefront window by slinging a manhole cover through the glass. But the heist was spoiled and he was easily apprehended when he fell into the same manhole on his getaway. (laughs) That's what the psalmist is saying. You know, often a sinner falls victim to his own sin. You remember the story of Queen Esther. Remember Haman built his gallows to execute the Jewish leader Mordecai, but he ended up swinging from his own gallows. You remember that? God has ways of returning a wicked man's trouble upon his own head. David ends with verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 8 is one of my favorite psalms. And that's where we'll begin next week.